This is W-O-W-D-L-P Tacoma Park. This is the Artist Experience Radio Show, and I'm Sheila Blake, and I'm here with Tom Sinakis and my husband, Peter. Good morning, everyone. Today we're talking about a current exhibition at the National Gallery of Art titled Afro-Atlantic Histories, and it's up until July 17th. The National Gallery of Art on the Mall in D.C. is always free and open to the public. Masks are not required, but they are suggested. This exhibition visually engages the viewer to the complexities in history, culture, and art forms of the African diaspora. This large exhibition of over 130 works from many different artists working in many different media is an important look at the variety of art coming from the African diaspora over the centuries. Works in the exhibition are from Africa, Europe, North and South America, and the Caribbean. The exhibition addresses identity, which is so important to every individual centuries ago and especially today. I think it's fair to say that over the past few years, art museums all over the country have awakened and have made concrete and substantial moves to increase the diversity of their exhibitions, their staff, and their audience, and the results have been spectacular. Quite apart from any popularity or any measures of success for these shows, I think, speaking as a viewer of art, that a whole new world is suddenly opened. These curators have brought to us an amazing display, but it's also challenging and sometimes carry terribly painful to look at these documents of our history, which have been mostly hidden until now. In many ways, this exhibition is a celebration about seeing a wide range of art from the African diaspora. Yes, in looking at art, you get to be immersed in a cultural education. It is a cultural education. That's what exhibitions ideally should be. The curators are working to present to us a world in greater richness than we have yet experienced. Let's recall just a few of the extraordinary exhibitions that have graced the National Gallery in the last few years. I'm thinking about a show of Byzantine art. Uh, There's an exhibition of the Florentine ceramic sculptor of the Renaissance, Della Robbia. A show of Vermeer and his contemporaries, shows of abstract expressionists, and there were many more. Each of these exhibitions revealed a world. They revealed a world behind the paintings, the world of religion, faith, commerce, belief, competitive striving, practical living, festivals, artistic practice, and genius in cities and societies more or less remote from us here in the 21st century America. In each of these shows, a world was brought to life. And that world, though, is familiar to us. Uh, I would say beginning in Greece, Rome, moving through the Middle Ages into Southern and Northern Europe, and the Renaissance, from which springs the way we in North America think about art. It's a rich tradition, but it is permeable. It's open to new influences. When the French and the Dutch started trading with the East, influences from Japan came to the artists of Europe, and they fell in love with everything Japanese. A generation later, Picasso saw African masks as a form of expressing anger, and Matisse went to Morocco and fell in love with the tropical plants, the white arches, and the spirit of a different culture, and he incorporated it into his art with the patterns of the textiles and ceramics of the Middle East, and then extended the imagery. And then came the modernists and the pure abstractionists. But you see, so far this tale has been built up over centuries, and it's a tale told by and about the dominant social group. 
Now the soft power of black activism has delivered something new. We have the gift of looking at what grows from the roots of Africa and South America and the Caribbean. In Afro-Atlantic histories, the current exhibition at the National Gallery of Art, a world is brought to life. The vision extends over time over several hundred years. The world of Africans brought enslaved to the Americas, their descendants, and the cultures they created. The exhibition is full of life. Potential visitors might be afraid that the art would be political, programmatic, going over the obvious crimes, pushing you into anger or, or resentment or guilt, but that is not the effect. The effect is art. What this show is ab about, art. Absolutely, Peter. And this exhibition is large, and maybe I'm out of shape due to COVID wear and tear for personal care. But in viewing a large exhibition of this kind, we need patience and energy to see it. And I suggest not seeing the, this exhibition one visit. This is the kind of exhibition we almost kind of could do two shows about, but we won't. One criticism of this exhibition is, in fact, the size and curatorial editing could have scaled down the exhibition. Personally, there was too much inclusion of European artists painting African subjects. Please note, these works by European artists are lovely. The inclusion of renowned artists like Delacroix and Jericho are paintings of African subjects are wonderful. Yes, there is curatorial name-dropping, and it's nice to have well-known artists in a show like this, but I think it opens up also wounds of colonialism and depicting African subject as novelty in a bad light. One of these curators used the word brethren to describe these European artists, which are included in the show. To me, that word signifies a spiritual bond, and I'm not sure that is always the case with white European artists. And there's a lot of text uh, on the walls, but in this case, it's especially important for historical context. I know many people will ignore these non-art examples. A letter and a document of a sale of a slave is not art, but it is integral in the piece of history because artists do not work in a vacuum and artists respond to history. This part of the exhibition is wonderfully powerful. You know, I think our mantra on this show should be just be open. <laughs> we're, we're speaking here to our audience, not as experts, but as viewers like you, because expertise is generally not required to respond to art. Just go. Absolutely. When we went, we passed through a rotunda, then a large hall, kind of like the palaces of Europe. And on pedestals, there were beautiful, ghostly white marble goddesses from the wealth of European aristocracy and their rich American admirers. Then past two huge panoramic canvases of the American West into the palm court with its Italian fountain and cupids playing in the splashing water. That's how we got to the entrance to Afro-Atlantic histories. The title is in neon over an opening in the marble wall, and a map of the Americas is projected on the left, Europe and Africa on the right, and we enter through the Atlantic Ocean. We see that same map, those same continents, first in what looks like a gleaming, rippled, polished metal, and again to the right uh, in poured and glowing paint, both of which simmer in the full experience of modern art like an updated Rothko. And we feel thankful. We're in good hands. Well, the text on the wall is instructive and to the point and important in introducing this exhibit. It basically tells you to pay attention to what's coming up. The first painting that Peter was just describing is by Frank Bowling, an artist from Guyana and England. And it's a poured abstraction that's luminescent and sometimes iridescent with the contours of the American and African continents with a yellow streak between them, which is the Middle Passage. I had to look up the origin of that phrase. The Middle Passage was the stage of the African slave trade in which millions of enslaved Africans were violently captured and transported to the Americas as part of the triangular slave trade. Ships departed Europe for African markets with manufactured goods. 
that's the first side of the triangle, which were then traded for slaves with rulers of African states and other African slave traders. Slave ships now transported the now enslaved people across the Atlantic, which is the second side of the triangle. The proceeds from selling the enslaved people were then used to buy products such as hides, tobacco, sugar, rum, and raw materials, which would be transported back to Northern Europe to complete the triangle. And the second room contains representations and references to the initial horror, capture, chains, transport, the full catastrophe. And yet, the effect of the art is understanding. Most of the art in this room is modern art, and it's mysteriously evocative. You face the cruelty and oppression, and you see the spirit of the captured. Each viewer's response is going to be individual because you are not pushed into a predetermined political emotion. I enjoyed that first room uh, very much. There were some very interesting textures and patterns in a lot of the work, and this exhibition has several incredibly fantastic works that I would like to begin the show talking about. These are powerhouse works by artists from the African diaspora. Some are household names from the art world. You know, Sheila and Peter, why don't we chime in on these first? Uh, there's so many wonderful works. Uh, what great works stood out here uh, for you guys, and uh, how many of them were? We, I thought there was a lot. Well, you know, Tom, I really have to say that in preparing for this show that you and I, without really discussing it at all, mm -hmm. came up with some of the very same pieces. Some of them are known to us and some not. And we, both of us, locked in to the power of these wonderful pieces. And a lot of these artists are unknown to us. There's a wonderful collage by Romare Bearden, and he's considered the most important and influential art, African-American artist, maybe because he was so highly sophisticated and studied and looked at and learned from a world of artists. And then with this incredible color and design, he incorporated images from his childhood in Charlotte, North Carolina, trains, snakes, guitars. And then he moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and he built his visual vocabulary with rows of commercial buildings. And in New York City, he captured the feeling with his gorgeous sense of color as mood. He was part of the Harlem Renaissance, and he studied at the Art Students League. He went into the Army. He went to Paris to study philosophy, where he was introduced to the young artists who used collage. There's Matisse. There's Georges Braque. There's Picasso, Kurt Schwitters. There's everyone. He was so full of visions and influences, and I think the richness of all this and his brilliance, his own brilliance, made him the foundation from which many contemporary African-American artists sprang, not only because of his art, but because of his use of the African traditions and European traditions This, in that way that he did. And his use of flat shapes and silhouettes has become sort of a staple by contemporary artists like Carl Walker, Carrie James Marshall, and now the collage is echoed in the work of many contemporary African artists, uh, African American artists, Faith Ringgold, Cara Walker, Laura Simpson, Micheline Thomas, and it's made its way into a younger generation too. So Bearden co-authored a book on the history of more than 50 African American artists, which I really have to read. I wish I'd read it before seeing this exhibit. I didn't even know he wrote this book but I will read it now. There's a painting by Carrie James Marshall in this exhibit. He's one of the very best-known contemporary American artists of any race. His work also incorporates many influences, telling stories, but also by making obvious the styles of painting across the world, combining many traditions and using black for the people as a design element, but more importantly, to make a statement about black power, black beauty, and the political and social invisibility of blacks. Marshall based several of his pieces in the early 1990s on actual events in American history. Voyager, which is the piece here, which is owned by the National Gallery, 
Marshall painted in 1992, and it has special place in the discussion of race issues in the United States because Marshall based it on a luxury schooner secretly outfitted to carry African slaves. This is an unknown story to me. Symbols of this representation abound, but the two black figures in the boat and the flowers draped around the woman's neck to the contrast between the light and airy clouds and the darkness in the upper background, a skull lies in the water just beneath the ship, hinting at the doomed future of the Africans and the unknown woman that has an expression of uneasy uneasiness. So what he's doing is he's showing you this luxury schooner, which is transporting enslaved people in its hull. And he thus brings to the forefront the irony of a ship that was a beautiful, high class in appearance and a dark secret purpose, forcing people to think about something they would rather forget. But when I saw the painting, I hadn't known the story behind it, and it seemed kind of weak and uninteresting compared with Marshall's really terrific paintings of a beauty shop or a town full of life and contradiction. Well, thank you for the background on that mm. painting. I wasn't familiar with it either. Well, if you just joined us, you're listening to the Artist Experience radio program on WOWDLP Tacoma Radio. I'm uh, Tonkson Akis here with Peter Blake and Sheila Blake in the studio. Today we're talking about a current exhibition at the National Gallery of Art titled Afro-Atlantic Histories. This exhibition visually engages the viewer to the complexities in history, culture, and art forms of the African diaspora. This large exhibition of over 130 works from many different artists working in many different media is an important look at the variety of art coming from the African diaspora over the centuries. Works in the exhibition are from Africa, Europe, North and South America, and the Caribbean. So in that second room, the one about captivity, the middle passage and coming into slavery, there are several fine works. In the middle of the room is a contemporary carved wooden slave ship manned by African warriors done in a modern pastiche of an African style. There are two, Af- there are two abstract wall hangings in burlap by clearly different artists that hint that sea voyages, ports, commerce, and the commerce of human beings. I'm just looking from piece to piece, fascinated, not reading the wall text. That's one way I differ from you. I I resist reading the wall text unless I'm truly curious about the facts surrounding the piece. Mostly, I want the work to resonate. I don't want it explained. It's usually clear enough. Um, Casting the whole room in the ambient glow of its idea is the large painting on the far wall by Aaron Douglas, Into Bondage, a modernist painting with the figures of the captives and silhouettes diminishing in perspective as in spirit, transitioning from blue to gray as they make their way towards the ships, while the air bursts in concentric circles and a ray of light falls across the upturned face of the principal figure, questioning heaven and fate. The National Gallery owns this painting, and I've seen it before, displayed along us, alongside other American paintings. And it was always good, but here, in this setting, it is spectacular. It fills the room with its longing. It has the spirit of a transitional chapter in an epic. And, and this is the feeling that I'm getting from the exhibition. It's an epic It starts with an epic defeat. It's the story of a people. This is how it begins. This is real. This is history. Defeat and captivity. Like the Trojans. Like the Israelites in Babylon. And here, so many generations later, the descendants are telling the story. Oh, thank you, Peter. Well, yes, yes, and yes. (laughs) I only talk about Aaron Douglas with great enthusiasm. Into Bondage from 1936 is a showstopper in this particular exhibition and anywhere else it's hung. Aaron Douglas was an American painter, illustrator, and visual arts educator. He was a major figure in the Harlem Renaissance, and he developed 
his art career, painting murals and creating illustrations that addressed social issues around the race and uh, around around race and segregation in the United States by utilizing African-centric imagery. We talked about him at length a few months ago in another show. A work that stands out as another masterpiece in this exhibition is a work by a Jamaican artist that school that was schooled in London. Barrington Watson was the, was his name, and he lived from 1913 to 1960. There wasn't much on the web about him, which kind of disappointed me. Well, he was a standout soccer player in college, but he pursued art, and his art talent is huge. He had a very short life, and the painting included in, in the exhibition is called The Conversation from 1981. It's a large work of three Jamaican women Conver conversing with metal buckets at their feet. The clothes of these beautiful bodies and color palette are stunning studies of clothed female figures. The form, light, and expressions and composition are filmed with all the makings of a successful and well-thought-out painting. It is beautiful, women in conversation. The figures have stature, poise, and strength. Three full standing portraits in action. Wow. That painting I could stare at for hours. You're not kidding. I love this painting too. I love it. Looking at it, you look at it with absolute trust. It's that feeling that there's nothing ever that needed to change. It is perfection. Mm. And so I have no worries in looking at this painting. And it's abstract design principles, which you, Tom, talk about, are so present here. Line, value, light on the women, then the light coming through their headscarves, the colors of light and shadow. It's all perfection. The shapes of the light through the dark legs of the women who have slightly different dark skin tones, but just dark enough to make the light shine behind them. The buckets on the ground, the perfect simplicity with just enough detail the organization of the colors on their clothes and the light and shadow. This, all I can say is perfection. It captures an ordinary moment, but transcends to the unique personalities of these women. Oh, thank you, Sheila. You know, if we wanted to talk about qualities of painting, we could do a whole show just on that painting. Mm -hmm. Well, now I, I must talk about Charles White. Charles White was an African-American artist working in Chicago most of his life, but he relocated to the Otis Art Institute in L.A. for health reasons. And there he was an influential art educator for many, many students. I was introduced to Charles White by a student in the early 1990s. I often used Charles White drawings in my classes when I talk about perspective of the human figure and of drawing hands. Charles White was an excellent draftsperson. Gospel Singers from 1951 in the exhibition is a small and powerful work that clearly shows the artist's love of color and form. This work is temper on panel, but yet it's modern and yet traditional in its media usage. White depicts an important legacy in the a African diaspora, music and playing and singing, which were particularly important to the artist as well in his life. The gospel music legacy is, is, an, is important as in the church setting in which many works of Charles White exist, but also in this exhibition, which I would like to talk more uh, later about in the program. Well, Charles White is an excellent, excellent artist to look at for how the human face and the human hands are painted and rendered as it's an important vehicle of movement and the body language in art. And he gives us a lot of body language in his artwork. And he was very, very much knowledgeable of the movement of the human form. I highly recommend to our listeners that you study this work. His work educates and demonstrates very well the particulars of human anatomy in the face and hands. And Charles White was the teacher of Carrie James That's Marshall. Right. Thank yeah. You. I so, about that. Yeah, so he had a tremendous influence. There's so much in this show that it really was sometimes hard to decide what to look at. At first, I looked at everything 
and I read everything. And when I saw the galleries open up before me, endless galleries, I decided I had to be more selective or I would have to get a couch to lie on. But the work that really drew me was either things by artists that were familiar or things that just simply knocked my socks off. The things that made me want to walk right uh, right by them, though, were the classical European-based romantic work, like The Fugitive Slave. Yuck. It was a hyper-romantic painting with a young black man looking from out, out from his sheltering tree trunk into the swamps. And on the horizon are three searchers on horseback, just barely there. And the light from the sunrise with the wispy pink clouds is giving hope for his escape. I think it's hard for me to shift from what we've been looking at to these romantic conventional pictures. By European artists. By European <laughs> artists, yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, but other people will have different tastes. I think it's fine to skip by them since, mm. as you say, it's a large exhibit. You don't have a duty to like everything. But I was interested. I saw them, and maybe I was wrong since, as I said, I didn't read the wall text. But they appeared to me to be mid-19th century European-style pieces with an abolitionist message. And the abolitionist movement is part of the story. Uh, effective social movement art in that vein has its place in history and in these histories. And, and some of them were really good. Uh, there was one of a, it was women and children scurrying fearfully and breaking out from the woods. They were looking towards far away a United States flag and freedom. I thought it was very effective. It was, um, a moving story. I looked at it a long time. That was actually a, a <laughs> um, an exceptionally uh, different and uh, interesting painting because it had a lot of movement. It was yeah. well painted. Yeah. Uh, and uh, did you notice how the, 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 uh, the, the people were grabbing the young ones? They were holding them tight so they wouldn't run too far ahead. Yeah, that's right. They, it was um, the, 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 the mothers and, and the women were holding on to the little ones who were had those postures of... of you know, slightly uncoordinated, um, eager ch children. So, um, but everyone was afraid, and uh, that was conveyed. Yes, I, I thought very much so. Well, many of the artists in the show were also well versed in the art of the white Europeans. These artists studied in in Europe in academic traditions. Later, these more contemporary artists were in search for the new Afrocentrism that. Uh, had, had that had them depart from the European prototypes. Yes, we see artists like Elizabeth Catlett and Edna Manley, sculptural works that come from a European tradition. They are done well, but they are steeped in a European tradition. It was what they were looking at at the time, and several works by African artists that take on European prototypes uh, in painting design, we could see like a Matisse influence and derivative works from European prototypes. A work by Haywood Ombre, untitled from 1950, is a in the portrait section of the exhibition, is a work that seems influenced by Matisse. These artists were reshaping the, tr the traditional art narrative to suit their identity. And Micheline Thomas's work, Melody, which is... Uh, colon back from 2011, not only references Dominique Eng's classic uh, masterpiece, The Grand Odalisque, but it also conjures up the more modern photograph by Man Ray in The Violin of Ang from 1924. So they are looking back at European artists as well. Well, you know, good artists, and these artists are all good, are ambitious. They want to make a powerful statement. So, you know, you go to art school, you learn how to draw and how to paint, you learn to love the masters that came before you, you learn their techniques, and then do something surprising, a revelation, a celebration of the people you love. Well, a visual strength of this exhibition that stands out boldly and beautifully is how these African uh, um, artists from the diaspora use patterns and textures. 
The first few rooms clearly show that this is a very traditional way akin to traditional felting and quilting. Throughout the exhibition, pattern gets defined in more modern ways using color. Organized rhythms in a way of patterns in so many of these work conjure up also uh, the love of music by so many cultural groups in, in Africa. Music is rhythm, and this is inherent in so many of these words. These, these works have a lot of rhythm, visual rhythm in them. Traditional African music, the drones of singing on an African slave ship, the Mississippi Delta blues, the jazz age, gospel music, and even the sounds of Motown comes through in the visuals of these works. And I think that's a power in connoting uh, music pattern and rhythm and repetition in so many of these works. The cross-pollination of art forms carries into fashion and dress, hairstyles, sacred and secular art forms bring a great humanity to this exhibition. The visual variety also speaks to the great diversity among African peoples in the diaspora. This also works by the Afro-Cuban artists, Rasta, Creole, African and North American traditions are visually uh, quite different, even in their uh, different di diaspora. We're going to take a short break, and we're going to come back and, and, and continue our conversation about the exhibition at the National Gallery, West Wing, Afro-Atlantic Histories. By the rivers of Babylon This is Artist Experience, and I'm Sheila Blake with my co-host Tom Sinakis and with my husband Peter Blake. Today we're talking about a current exhibition at the National Gallery of Art titled Afro-Atlantic Histories. This exhibition visually engages the viewer in the complexities in history and culture and art forms of the African diaspora. It's often said that art never stopped an army or art never changed the world or something like that. And to the extent that that's true, I think it's not so much a reflection on the power of art, but on its shallow reach, since most people don't go to art museums, not very much. Uh, but there are many people who need every day the power that art gives us. Look, those of us who are descendants of white Europeans have always been blessed with elevating images of ourselves, our ancestors, our culture. Let's take that Italian fountain, the Cupids. You don't have to be Italian to feel that it's part of your culture. The idea that art of this sort belongs to one ethnic group it's a powerful idea, but it's not true. And it needs to be challenged, and it is being challenged. This is what W.E. Du Bois was struggling with his whole life and career. The central insight of the first chapter of his wonderful, groundbreaking book, The Souls of Black Folk, Du Bois observed that 
self-conception is a function of how others see you. Identity is not biological and static. It is social and relational. He knew that each race has its own traditions and spirit and is destined to make its own peculiar contribution to civilization. Du Bois understood racial identity not as something fixed, as Booker T. Washington and others saw it. He saw it as something essentially plastic. And if groups define themselves by their difference from other groups, a change in the status of one group affects every group that defines itself in relation to it. To the degree the black identity becomes more like white identity, in other words, it is not only blackness that changes. Whiteness changes as well. The Souls of Black Folk was in part a book about the stake white Americans had in racial division. And that is, by the way, the essence of reaction. Reactionaries want to maintain the current hierarchies. They want people to stay in their places. They want the people at the bottom to stay at the bottom. This spirit, I need hardly say, is still quite alive. But let me return to Du Bois. This analysis of Du Bois is from Louis Menon's wonderful book, The Metaphysical Club. Du Bois understood that the fiction of the Anglo-Saxon, as the name for an ethnic type that defined itself against other types, had proved crucial to the self-conception of white Americans. So this was a problem. Were black Americans stuck with an identity defined for them by white Americans? An answer to this problem was developed a generation later by another black Harvard graduate, Alain Locke. Alain Locke had tried, as a student at Harvard and then at Oxford, this was around 1910, to block out the physical accident of his race and to fit into the academic culture on the basis of his mind and his words. He was instead shunned. He was shunned at Harvard, and he was shunned at Oxford. He began to study Du Bois. He became a professor of philosophy at Howard University here in D.C. The philosophy he developed became the basis of the movement called the Harlem Renaissance. He understood modernity to be a condition that society reaches when life is no longer conceived as cyclical, where people are no longer expected to reproduce the customs and culture of the group they came from, a condition where society can change. And the key for the advancement of the black social group was stimulation of pride in itself, satisfaction in their practices and achievements, but not to isolate itself. Modern civilization does not tolerate separateness. In the words of John Dewey, the author of Artist Experience, John Dewey was a pragmatist, and so was Alan Locke, and I get this material from Louis Menon's book about the pragmatism, the metaphysical club. So John Dewey said, quote, the way to deal with separateness is to find and celebrate our special good and surrender it into a common fund of wisdom and experience what it especially has to contribute. All of these surrenders and contributions taken together create the national spirit of America. So, Locke was a modernist by necessity. He felt there was no other choice. He started the Harlem Renaissance. And although people eventually stopped claiming to be part of this Harlem Renaissance, it never really faded away. In a sense, its spirit is throughout this exhibition. And it shows the extraordinary wisdom of Locke's words. Black artists working in the modernist tradition are showing all of us these lives that are worthy of value, persons worthy of being valued. And not just the doctors, teachers, and saints, but also the Haitian revolutionary, the sharecropper wife, the streetwise hipster, the barber, the singer, the ones who are telling us, I'm walking here. Art solidifies their value and transforms the spirit. 
Thank you so much, Peter, on, on, on this literary uh, roots to how we kind of celebrate this exhibition. And I think that's really, really important. And what it does is, as John Dewey so beautifully said, by sharing all these artworks in the exhibition, it really does contribute to the national spirit of America. And, and what I keep on thinking of is this whole concept that's going around in the media about the people that actually believe this concept of the replacement theory. Like, it's it's us against them, and they're trying to overthrow us. That's not the way it is, and we have to understand that. Everybody's difference is a contribution to this, and I had a conversation with a student about this this semester. She was very disappointed in her academic life, at the university she goes to. And I told her that, you know, because she come from came from a poor part of Massachusetts of a very immigrant community, and I told her, no, you have to put your foot forward and celebrate that here. Don't hide it. The celebration of your difference is that really mm-hmm. a win for everybody. It's a win-win. And I think that's something that uh, we need to say that more and more, and this exhibition definitely is a, is a great start in this direction. Well, there's a wonderful room in the exhibition that addresses everyday toil and work in these African peoples living in the Caribbean, like in Haiti, but also in Brazil, working on plantations. These colorful, primitive, naive, or folk examples by artists that I never heard of, uh, but are well-known in their respective places, were really refreshing. The color of these works is magnificent. The works are engaging and they beautifully capture the rigors of working and living in villages. Hater Don Prazeres' work from 1948 is a, is a stunning depiction of black and white workers returning to the plantation after not finding work in Rio de Janeiro after slavery was abolished in Brazil. It's a road of workers sandwiched between lush growth of energetic bushes with this vermilion red in the shanty houses of the favelas peaking in the environment and among, among the flowers. The people carry assorted burlaps, uh, they look like burlap sacks, and the work is lovely. The Haitian artist Philomé, who is an important artist in his own island of Haiti, is introduced to us here with this very sweet painting titled On the Road to Carrefour des Pères from 1950. It's a road with people walking and a young black boy on a donkey uh, on the left is terrific. He's kind of looking out. The greens and yellows are strong in the symmetrical composition. It's another sweet and beautiful painting in a native, naive style. Another artist, Castera Basile from Haiti, from 1963, in a work titled Haitian Markets by the Sea, screams color, color, color in a painting of people trading and selling their wares by the sea. It's amazing how these artists, which I didn't know, had such an amazing sense of color, patterns, and textures. Um, I'm going to talk about Janira Damada e Silva, who was uh, from 1914 to 1979. She was born in a very humble family in Brazil, and she started to paint in her 20s when she was hospitalized with tuberculosis. Before becoming an artist, she worked at a coffee plantation and then as a street vendor in Sao Paulo, and later as a pension manager in Rio de Janeiro, so she created and owned this pension in Santa Teresa Barrio, where, which was a temporary home for immigrant artists and writers, who later inspired her to pursue her career in art. This painting has an innocence about it. It's nicely composed with the top filled with the bright blue sky and the green sea and the sails of boats on and off the shore. Then the whole bottom of the painting, which is most of the painting, is on a flat brown ground of the bustling market where white people are the shoppers and the black people are the sellers. The colors of of the clothing, the straw hats, the fruits, and the donkey, each figure is part of so much activity. The artist is painting what she knows, and I'm transported to the ordinariness of this very rich life. And I think a lot of our listeners will, too. Uh, Then we have, of course, the American outsider artist Clementine Hunter, who has two works in the exhibition. 
One we'll talk about a little later. This artist uh, was a field hand and a house servant on a plantation in Louisiana. She began making art in her 50s and produced over 5,000 works on found objects and cardboard. This piece, it's untitled, from 1970, is an oil painting on a cardboard. It's a tiny little small panoramic horizontal work. It's so simple and so crude but lovely. The white mule or the horse looks out at the picture being pulled by a worker. Seeing this artist, Clementine Hunter, makes me want to just see more and more of this raw and honest work. And then there's the American folk artist, Horace Pippin. This painting is, is titled School Studies from 1944, a domestic scene of great gray neutrality that is livened up by these rag rolls and quilts on the floor with a red shelf. It's a magnificent scene, and this artist lacks the true knowledge of linear perspective, which makes the work quirky and fun. Horace Pippin is painting in Upper New York State, but it could be anywhere in the African communities, in the impoverished South and Midwestern United States, and it's just a little gem. Yeah. Well, I'm going to mention three of my favorite paintings without any making too many points or comparisons, but just to talk about how good they are. That Black Jesus by Clementine Hunter. Yeah, Tom, she did this painting when she was 99 years old. And if I could do something that straightforward and so pure in expression, if my kids were all getting along, I would die happy. <laughs> <laughs> and the two other paintings, Tom, you chose this, chose this one also by the African-American artist Hayward Ubra from 1950. And it's a man with his head resting on his hand, leaning on a small table with a vase of three flowers against his white blouse. And it doubles, the flowers doubles as a pattern on his blouse and also flowers in the vase. And there's a huge resemblance between his work and the work of Milton Avery, who is also a favorite of mine, who followed Matisse in a more simplified way. Uber had the formal education in art and was later the art department chair at Howard University. In an effort to provide his painting students with the proper learning material, he developed and copyrighted a concise study of color mixing and color relationships, a color wheel that was updated and expanded from the 1810 color triangle developed by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. And another painting, A Little Girl in Green, by another African-American artist, William H. Johnson, was done about 10 years before this. They're both immersed in the African-American experience. Johnson was older and had a difficult career. He went to study art in Paris. He managed, uh, married a Danish textile artist and was applauded as a real modernist. But in Europe, he was vilified as a degenerate artist. This was uh, just before World War II. And he returned to the U.S. and found work in the WPA. Poor guy, he just lost any physical or mental balance. But I want to make a comparison with Johnson and Hayward's work and the work of Milton Avery. These artists all were influenced and had an influence on the cur current generation. Look at their work, the insistence on pattern and color and simplicity and of all things that have to do with their clothing. Now compare that with the traditional American portraits where the clothing was background, subordinate to the faces, and then compare it with the terrific portraits of Amy Sherald and even Kehinde Wiley, which were all about the shapes and the color and the clothes. These artists are known throughout the world where their predecessors, their influence was hardly recognized. Milton Avery was white and had no trouble fitting into the art world, point made, kicking and screaming, Things are changing, and we are the winners. Yes, Sheila, and thanks for mentioning that Little Girl in Green by artist William H. Johnson. It's a gem that sits in a darker corner of one of the galleries, and it's hauntingly beautiful. 
Well, there are several black Jesuses in the exhibition, and I am fascinated by them. The depiction of a black Christ by the Brazilian artist Octavia Arraio from 1955 being crucified in a Brazilian slum, the favela, is a great visual metaphor. The Brazilian military police replaced the Roman centurions here. Included here is a weeping uh, woman, possibly the mother, is a metaphor for Jesus' mother Mary. Weirdly enough, there is a Cezanesque palette and a compositional landscape in the background which seems to say that this artist was familiar with European painting traditions. It's a very haunting crucifixion. Many of the works address the religious devotion of Christianity that was brought upon them in their arrivals to lands of the diaspora. After all, North America, South America, and the Caribbean, not to mention Europe, were predominantly Christian and often Catholic. Some works address the Afrocentric return to deities in their native Africa, and there are two pieces that visually address voodoo from Haiti and Creole, Louisiana. The exhibition does not address this historical phenomenon, but it, it appears strongly in the art throughout the exhibition. Totally out of place in this exhibition, but incredibly strong to illustrate the religious affiliations in the exhibition Afro-Atlantic Histories is a work by a Spanish artist depicting the first Catholic saint of African descent, which is, who is Saint Benedict of Palermo, and he was canonized in 1807. The gilded ecclesiastical garment with the red underpainting of bowl comes out magnificently. The black stone of the African saint with uh, expressive hands and face preaching is very strong. It's almost Baroque in style, and it's just a different look of this work in the exhibition, but I enjoyed the difference very much. There are very strong graphic paintings that are very modern sensibility by two Brazilian artists, Abdias Nascimento and Ruben Valentim, incorporate modern Brazilian constructivist traditions in modern art that depict African orishas. I'm not sure how that's pronounced. Orishas are graphic depictions of African deities. There are many uh, kinds of realms that depict the earthly and spiritual realms of these African deities in these works. The directional symbols and graphics are colorful and very modern. These works are unique in this exhibition. There are also works that I'm not familiar with at all. I had no idea about these African orishas. These works are very refreshing, introducing me to the deities of the African diaspora that were usually deemed actually illegal in the strongly Catholic Brazil and other Catholic areas of the African diaspora. Well, St. Benedict of Palermo, that was the greatest it was, I love that sculpture. This, it's why art can be so powerful. I was, as it was in a sort of a back, a little bit of a back gallery, and I was about to meet my limit in taking in new things. And then I came on St. Benedict, the first black saint. And it's perfectly placed above me. So when I remembered it, it seemed to be, more than life-size, but actually when I checked it out, it's about four feet tall, so for me that's about life-size. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> so, but just look at this beautiful man, and he's leaning slightly back, looking out, feeling the power of the divine with his gold robes and his hands holding the Bible and his right hand alive with his spirit and encountering a sculpture of this magnitude is something I've really race wrestled with since I was a teenager and I sort of gave up religion. I wasn't interested in it. And I would say I don't believe in God. I believe in humanity. But great works of art like this, like the music of Bach and Handel and Mozart, and the great cathedrals, the natural wonders of nature, I mean, miracles, where does this come from? I mean, St. Benedict is made by man, but its power comes from something way beyond. 
Oh, absolutely, Sheila. And as we close the show, I have to mention another wonderful work, and in this case, it's a portrait by Barclay Hendricks. I was familiar with this terrific artist's work for years now, which I'd like to call almost Afro-pop art. Barclay Hendricks was a well-trained American artist who practiced painting and photography and was well-known with the portrait, often life-size and quite, quite uh, bigger in scale, of African Americans. He was trained in Yale, at Yale, and he, he died in 2017 at the age of 72. I became familiar with his works when I lived in Norfolk, Virginia, and I lived down the block from the Chrysler Museum. It's a very good museum. And there I met Slick. Slick was the title of a painting by Bartley Hendricks. It was painted in uh, 1977, and it's actually a self-portrait of the artist. It's a work that's 67 inches tall by 48 inches wide, and it's about life-size. And this is a very handsome man in an off-white suit on a white background with a beautifully patterned skull cap. Slick is perfect. The exhibition has a very strong example as well, and that's called George Jules Taylor from 1972. And, and George Jules Taylor was actually a classmate of Barclay Hendricks at Yale School of Art. Well, like Slick from 1977, the work exudes power, poise, and lots of moxie. Wonderful, wonderful energy in this painting. Yeah, Barclay Hendricks, he is really good. His portraits aren't just about the face, they're about style. He's all about clothes and the pose, jazz, hipness, and boy, was he good. Kehinde Wiley, who came along about 30 years after Hendrix, was a great admirer of his work, and he started down that same road. He did the same large-scale portraits of African Americans, but whereas Hendrix's portraits are on flat backgrounds, and you can see what pleasure he gets in completing his paintings, Wiley's figures are on complicated pattern backgrounds that are painted by skillful technicians, not uh, Wiley himself. But that's okay, because you remember his portrait of Barack Obama. It's a fabulous thing. They're slicker. You can see that Hendricks loves painting his pictures, whereas Wiley loves the results. The timeliness of the style and attitude of Hendricks' portraits, and as they're stopped in time, the statement that they made will say more with the passage of time. Kehinde Wiley's has taken this idea of how to make cultural change with art and brought it into the present, and they are both great. So many of the older artists in this exhibition, like Romare Beard and Jacob Lawrence, Aaron Douglas, Charles White, and Kara Walker, have set a very high standard for the younger American artists of the diaspora, especially in the U.S. And the new generations of artists, just like who Sheila talked about in, in, in Wiley's work and uh, Amy Sherald, they're really kind of meeting the task and looking at the greatness of these artists from the African diaspora. So the young ones are doing a great job here as well, and they're responding beautifully with their own original art. Afro-Atlantic Histories is an exhibition we have discussed today, and it's up till July 17th. Again, we want to thank you for your recent donations of our community radio station for our spring 2022 fund drive. Your generous donations help us purchase more studio equipment, maintain the studio, improve our programming. If you have not donated, go to TacomaRadio.org and press the donate button. Stay tuned to the next exciting programming by our own Bobby Hill and Clay Fink, This Music. Every Saturday from 10 to 1 p.m. Avant-garde jazz is right here. Listen every other Sunday from 8 to 10 p.m. to our friend Gail Barron's and the Night Ride Home. Don't forget to tune in on our next Saturday in our own time slot from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. to Lost Treasures with DJ Mackey. This is one of Wowdy's DJ musical archaeologists. Experience art and the visual in everything you do. And thanks for listening. And we'll see you in two weeks. Mm-hmm.